Would you keep your scriptures open to the 24th chapter of Luke? Before I begin to teach, I would really like for you to pray. Um, This one is not together yet. And, uh, of course, few of them are, but... uh, but I have, uh, it's, it's uh, ironic and somehow appropriate that uh, I have a lot of doubts about this sermon. But I don't have doubts about what you can hear directly from God. And I don't have doubts about what His Word can say um, when I don't speak it. So would you pray with me that the Holy Spirit would just help you hear this morning what you really need to hear despite my confusion and uncertainty. Lord, we are earthen vessels. I am an earthen vessel. And I know that you have more to say this morning than my words would let you. So I pray to you that you would not be limited by me but that your Holy Spirit would speak directly into the hearts and spirits of your people here. I know you love us all more than we love ourselves, and I know that you want to teach us more than we want to learn. So, Father, help neither of us, any of us, to be an impediment to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go back to the 36th verse of the 24th chapter. I think uh, maybe uh, Dave Olson got, one, got a hold of one of those possibility thinkers' Bibles that didn't have any negative uh, passages in it. The 36th, passage, 36th verse talks about Jesus coming standing in their midst. And it says, when, And they were startled and frightened, and they thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Now, I want you to remember that word because that's an an important phrase. There are two kinds of doubt in this world. One is a helpful doubt and one is a hurtful doubt. One is a head doubt and one is a heart doubt. Now, a head doubt is a helpful doubt because it drives us to the truth. We assume that there is a truth, and the intellectual ping-pong that we go through when we're trying to think about something and get to its deepest levels is a wonderful thing. It can be wonderful as well in the Word of God. Because when we say, I don't understand this passage, I can't rest until I have understood it in depth and to where it is intellectually understandable to me. Um, I will go after the truth until I find it. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Those kinds of doubts that don't accept truths automatically without thinking, but rather drive you deeper into the Word are wonderful things. But there is a kind of doubt that is not a wonderful thing. Years ago, before Christ ever walked the earth, in ancient Rome, there was, called a, there was a school of skepticism. And there was, a, there was a, a philosopher by the name of Carnades 
who proclaimed that he could take any subject and talk equally well both sides of that subject, take a stand on both sides of that subject. A more famous philosopher, Cato, that you may have heard of, finally ran him out of town because he realized how dangerous it, how dangerous it was to live life in ambivalence. To live life where you had two equal sides of everything, never being able to take a stand, never being able to decide on anything. That is a doubt of the heart. That is something that is down so deep in us that we have trouble ever making a decision. You know people, and I know people, who really have trouble making a decision. You know how some of them get that way. They may have tried for intimacy with someone who would not let them ever have confidence in what they said. One time I was in a, a shopping mall, and, and Beck, was, Beck is very kind to me when we go shopping together. She lets me sit down in the play area while, uh, while she goes in the stores. <clears throat> and I was sitting in the play area, and I was listening to a conversation between a mother and a daughter. And they were talking about some new playground equipment that they had gotten in their school. <clears throat> and the mother said, honey, how do you like the playground equipment? And the daughter said, oh, I love it. I love that playground equipment. And the mother said, you know, a lot of accidents happened on school playground equipment, don't you? Oh, yeah, I do. I, well, I, maybe I don't love it quite so much. Um, I mean, I didn't, I didn't mean I love it. Um, and then the mother said, but it is brand shiny new, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I, oh, it's just so neat to look at. But you realize your friends and you could get hurt or, or be harmed by it, don't you? Oh, yeah, I, I do. And, and I'm, I mean, it's nice to look at, but I don't know about getting on it. Uh, but isn't it wonderful that oh, the PTA, you... Uh, raised all that money to buy that equipment for you boys and girls. Yes, it was. That was so nice. But you realize, don't you, that, that you go to school to learn, not to play. Yeah. I, you see what was happening? All through that conversation, what was happening was this little girl was trying to get close to her mother. She was, uh, she was saying, you just give me a place to agree with you, and I'll agree with you so that we can be close. And her mother kept switching on her and nothing that that little girl would say would satisfy her mother. Her mother would constantly give the opposite stance, probably under the guise that I'm going to teach my little girl how, that, there's both, that there are two sides to every question and that there are, there are two sides to every question. But there is also a disruption inside. There's a chaos. There's, a, there's a, an ambivalence that people can live out and they can be tortured because they can never make a decision without hearing the other side. Without hearing the voice that says, now you're really making a mistake. And the mother kept drawing her out. Don't you think, she would say. Yes, I do. Oh, no. You can't think that. Don't you like? Yes, I do. Oh, watch out. And every place that little girl would go would be sinking sand. Now, what happens to an individual like that, especially 
when that individual links what happens in the world or their agreement with God with circumstances and they feel like circumstances have been reversed and God is telling them something different than he first said, is that they begin to live out a two-souled existence. Let me take you to the first chapter of James. It says in the first chapter, it's talking about, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Okay, how does the world operate? Not give me the facts, how does the world operate? That's what wisdom is. But let him ask, it says in verse six, in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded. Now, the Greek word for double-minded is daisukos, and it means literally having two souls. And the soul of a person is the identity of a person. It is the emotion and the mind and the will of a person. So therefore, there are really two people living in there, you see. <clears throat> now, why can this person not receive anything from God? Because they can't grab a hold of it. As soon as they start to grab a hold, there's a voice inside that says, nope, nope, that's not for you. And so they let it go and they say, why, have you, why do you have such little faith? And so they start to grab a hold again and then they can't, see, it just keeps going back and forth. And so these people are live in torment. These people who are identified with doubt. I mean, that's who they are. Satan, the accuser from the very beginning, has tried to get us to live in doubt. In the third chapter of Genesis, he came to Adam and Eve. And he said to Eve, um, Did God say that you couldn't eat of every tree of the garden or any tree of the garden? Just getting her to question. Well, no, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. I mean, she comes out and defends God. She defends him so strongly, by the way, this is a key to where she's at. She has to overstate what God says. She feels it's a personal defense of God, and therefore there is a lack of confidence in who God is. She has to over, only, God only said, you shall not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. And she says, well, God said you shall not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden or touch it lest you die. See? So already she feels like God's words aren't enough and she has to add to God's words. When Jesus started out his ministry, Satan was there. Coming against Jesus' personality. Coming against him as a person. If you are the Son of God. Coming against his identity. If you are the Son of God, make these stones turn into bread. If you are the Son of God, jump down off of that pinnacle. You see the self-doubt that is arising here. The doubt of the heart. It's not an intellectual doubt. Not an intellectual doubt. It's a doubt about your identity and where you stand with God and who God is and who God is not. And then at the beginning of the resurrection... The accuser comes again. And here is Jesus standing right in front of them. And they have doubts about who he is. And Jesus says, why do doubts arise in your heart? 
Now, I want to, I want to tell you three things this morning, real quickly. One of the things is that I want to give you permission this morning to question your doubts, to doubt your doubts every bit as much as you doubt the positive things in your life. I want, to, I want you to be able to doubt the process of doubting because in order to do that, I mean, in order to confront our doubts, we have to doubt their power. We have to separate ourselves from their um, intimidation and, and the fear that they bring upon us. So I want to, this morning, tell you that you have every bit as much right to doubt your doubts as you have to doubt the truth. What did Jesus do when he saw those doubts about their identity and about his identity, about their worthiness and about his worthiness, about their humanity and about his deity? What did he do? Well, first thing he said, I want you to get some evidence here. I want you to chase this thing down. I want you to confront it and I want you to act on it. He said, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. It's not a spirit. It's not something I said. It's not your memory. It's not a recollection. It's me. The important thing that we need to consider when we doubt God is that God is God. And we need not to confuse him with anybody else. We need not to confuse him with memories of our mothers and fathers and, and those who have been authority figures in our lives. We need not to confuse him with the memories when we had a lousy theology and he didn't meet up to our theology. We need to go and find out who he really is. It is me myself, he says. Come and investigate me. See me. Feel me. Touch me. You see? Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you, have, as you see that I have. And while they could still not believe it for joy, and they were marveling. See, they were, they were stuck to it. They were pursuing it. He said, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and he ate it before him. Proof that he was there physically. Proof. Spirits can't eat. Well, the first thing we need to do when we have doubts is we need to confront them. And we need to follow them up. And we need to seek the evidence. If you doubt in another person... Or if you doubt about another person, you need to go to that person and say, you know, I'm having some problems here. Let me just check this out. Let me just check this out. Because nine out of ten times, I will almost guarantee you, nine out of ten times, your doubts will be wrong. Your doubts will be wrong. I heard a story about um, Charles, I think it was Bordelais, who had a language school in New York. And there was a businessman who came to him who was moving to Indonesia. And he wanted this man to go over. He was teaching him the language, the native uh, Indonesian language, and he, and he wanted him to go over with him. So he thought that would be a great trip. So he went over with this guy. And the guy bought a, a, uh, um, a house out on the edge of town. He was a wealthy man. Bought, he had quite a few servants. And he went into work that week. And and so he said, well, I wonder what's happening at the house. They were getting the thing arranged, and there was something supposed to go on at the house. And, and Charles said, well, I'll just call up, see. So he calls up and asks in the native language what's happening and just bursts out laughing. 
hung up the phone. He said, boy, if that doesn't show you, you think you have command of a language, and then you get in the native country, and you find out you don't know it at all. And the guy says, well, what are you laughing at? I said, well, it sounded like he was saying, there's a tiger in the kitchen chasing the cook's dog. Well, he got home, and there was a tiger in the kitchen chasing the cook's dog. You see, his first inclination was to think that he was nuts, that his impression wasn't right. But he never took time to doubt his own doubt. Heard another story, read this story several years ago about a um, car dealership in Bodlo, Norway. That was it, B-O-D-L-O-E, Bodlo, Norway. And a man walked in there one day. This is in this little human interest snippets you get, you know, just a, a little paragraph when you're reading. And when it's Saturday and you can take time to read the thing thoroughly. Um, man walked in, said, uh, I see you sell cars here. And, the, and the, the salesman was real busy. And he said, of course we sell cars here. And the guy says, well, I want to buy 16 of them. And the, and the guy says, get out of here. I've got time for this this morning. And the guy did get out. Walked across to the dealership across the street and bought 16 cars. Um, it turned out that he was from a fishing fleet and they had had a marvelous catch. And all 16 hands decided that they would buy new cars and they wanted to all buy them together so he'd get the best price. Well, you see, the first thing that came out of that man's mouth was doubt. But he didn't confront the doubt. He didn't doubt the doubt. He didn't follow up the doubt. He didn't look for any evidence at all. And so therefore he lost what could have been an assurance of a wonderful truth. When we have doubts about people we love, when we have doubts about the God we respect, we awe, we need to question the doubts instead of question God. We need to chase those down and look for evidence so that we know what we're dealing with. The second thing we need to do is we need to get beyond the doubt with something that is broader than the doubt, with something that is more stable and far-reaching and more foundational than just that one doubt. When it's of another person, we need to go to the relationship and say, what does this relationship have for me? Not what does this one thing that I may doubt in this person's personality, but what relationship does this hold? And what are there other things in this relationship that I can use to balance this particular doubt? Of course, I'm going to follow up the doubt, but I want to see it in its context. Jesus said to them, these are my words. After he had talked that he was really there. After he had confronted their doubt with the evidence, then he laid out the foundation of what they needed to consider. Something more solid. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So therefore, Jesus took that particular doubt and gave them something much broader than just the evidence to face the doubt. And so therefore, when you have a doubt, don't just chase down the evidence to deal with the doubt. Chase down the broader context of where that doubt comes from or who that doubt comes from. 
and look for other things in the relationship that can add to the solidarity of the relationship. There was a guy who gave me a call just yesterday, and he's in the hospital, and he's, he's had a long battle with cancer. And they're having a lot of debate about his treatment right now, and he's going through a lot of doubt, and I would too, and you would too. And I am not saying for a minute when I say this to you, don't take charge of your treatment your, in, in any illness. You need to be participatory. You need to question. You need to know exactly what's going on with your body. I mean, that's very important. But beyond that intellectual pursuit of ultimate truth, I mean, not ultimate truth, but treatment truth, this man called me up and said... I really, really, really need to sense the nearness of God right now. I'm fearful. How can I sense the nearness of God? And I said, man, I'm glad you called. And I was. I was so tickled that he called. I said, what you need to do right now is to begin to praise God. Not praise him just that he gives you this challenge of cancer. But praise Him for who He is. Praise Him for all He is to you. Praise Him for all He is doing in the world. And not just because God inhabits the praises of His people. And not just because praise has power. But praise Him because I want you to be able to concentrate on all the way the world is structured and who structured it and who's in charge. Get out of the mentality of cancer. And get into who God is so that you have someone and something broader to depend upon. And then I said, look up a psalm that will help you so that you can be reminded of the promises of Scripture. And he said, great, I'll do it. So I got off the phone. I went over to the table where I was working, opened up the Scripture, turned right to one, Psalm 138. Let me, let me just read that with you. Uh, in case you're ever in this situation and you want to give somebody a little bit of encouragement. Psalm 138. I called him back up, by the way, and told him about this. I said, this is for you, brother. Let me read the first part and the last part. I won't go all through it. First part is, I will give thee thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to thee. Before the gods, I will bow down toward thy holy temple and give thanks to thy name for thy loving kindness and thy truth. Now that is a lot broader than treating an illness, isn't it? That's a lot broader. That's something more solid than just the doubts that are rising specifically because of a battle you're facing. But go to the end of that. Go to verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Thou wilt stretch forth thy hand against the wrath of my enemies. And thy right hand will save me. Is he talking about cancer? Or is he talking about heaven? Or is he talking about other aspects of life? Or is he talking about emotions? Or is he talking about understanding. What's he talking about? He's talking about all of them. God doesn't limit himself to one battle. This is a promise for all of the battles of life. Read that last. Verse 8. 
The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Thy loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of thy hands. Is that a wonderful psalm? You know what? When we have a specific doubt, something that is plaguing us, we need something much broader than just that battle to concentrate on. Because Satan can come against us when our attention is focused on any one circumstance or any one feeling. You get him outside of his field, in the field of God, you get him into who God is and who we are in God, he's lost. He has not got a prayer in that kind of perspective. Not a prayer. I came in here today doubting whether or not I would say anything of significance to you. This week, I preached four times. Four different new messages. How much time do you think I had to spend on this? Not much time. And I won't do that anymore. I've learned my lesson. That was stupid. I can't come and fall on my face in this thing and go, Help me, God, help me. Well, he does, and he will. But, you know, part of that is just a learning process. But you know what? The reason I can stand up here is because God's not dependent on me. He's never been dependent on me. He won't be dependent on me in the future. And any doubt I have about a particular message goes away when I think about how much he loves you and about how his ability to communicate with you is so far beyond what I say or do that I can just maybe slow him down with my own stupidity. But I can't stop him. So therefore, I can get up here and you can have hope and you can hear his message. One more thing, and then let's worship. Not only do you need to face the doubt and search for evidence regarding the doubt. Not only do you need to broaden the perspective so that you are seeing the bigger picture and not just what that doubt would say to you, not just facing that battle, but you need to look at the future. Jesus says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. And that repentance for forgiveness should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Beginning is a future word. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The way to combat doubt is not only to get a larger perspective but it's also to get a future perspective. Doubt clings to the past. Doubt anchors you to something that's already over and has no power over you. Doubt is something that would not have you look toward a positive thing that you can accomplish in the future. Therefore, it's all the more important that you say to yourself when you are doubting, this is what I will accomplish. Maybe it doesn't have to do with a doubt I have, but I've got, I've got to go to do something that I know is right. And so therefore my life won't be filled up with a question mark. I won't be crucified on a question mark. I know there's something I can do. 
I know there's something I can do. One of my favorite speeches in all the world was Teddy Kennedy's eulogy of his brother Bobby. Now, I'm not a Kennedy fan, but I tell you what, when he was eulogizing Bobby, and he said, some people look at the world and question why. They look at the world and they see the way things are and they question why. But my brother looked at what could be and questioned why not. That is the dynamic of doubt against the dynamic of faith. Doubt will every time make you come and say, why did it happen this way? I don't understand. I'm discouraged. Why is this going on? And there's a deep soul uh, anchor. There's a deep soul sinking. There's a despair. There's a There's a a temerity. There's a fear. And by the way, perfect fear casts out love. Perfect love casts out fear, but perfect fear casts out love. And if you let that fear develop, you will find it interfering in your relationships. But there's a fear there when you are anchored to that question of why. But when you know what God may do with you in the future, if you can look into the future and you can say to yourself, why not? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Why not? Why would God not do this? Why would God not answer this prayer? Why would God not have me go and establish something good in this way? Then... You've got doubt on the run. Then you've got something that doubt can't touch. When you establish in your mind that you will do something that is good. Now you don't have to, you don't have have to have the ultimate answer. That's another thing people say. Well, if I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to do, that's good if you're thinking about a vocation. That's good if you're thinking about a major move in your life. Yeah, you stay and you wait upon the Lord. You wait for direction. But that doesn't keep you from all future goodness. That doesn't keep you from doing what you know you could do every day. So therefore, a way to fight doubt is to step out into the future and do one good thing after another good thing after another good thing after another good thing. And doubt disappears. It has no future over a faithful obedience of God. It has no future. Okay, now we're going to pray for just a few minutes and then we're going to worship. I would love for you this morning to ask the Holy Spirit right now to bring up in your mind some doubt that has really been giving you a lot of trouble. And I mean intellectual doubt that you're chasing down the truth. I mean a heart doubt, a doubt about yourself, a doubt about who God is, a doubt about what generally God is going to do with your life whether he means good or evil. I mean a dual-mindedness, a double-mindedness. Ask God to bring forth that so that you can deal with it today, so that you can doubt it and say, you have no power over my life, so that you can get a broader context for it. God, what would you teach me? What's the broader context of this thing? What do I need to understand about this particular doubt? 
But more importantly, what do I need to understand about you? And then I want you to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Give me, give me one or two things that I can do just this week. What do you want me to do? And I want you to take a stand with God that that doubt is not going to bring you down. Okay? Will you do that this morning? All right. Now, as always, the... Uh, boy, it's hot in here, isn't it? What's the deal? As always, cook that thing, do this. The altar is open. Some of us pray better on our knees than we do on our seats. And so for a few minutes, if you'd like to come down and you just like to speak with God personally, you do that here. I will be down here. Um, uh, uh, we got, Tom, will you want to come up here? John, if you want to pray with any elder and you want them to agree with you, that's also a great dynamic. If you have never received Christ because you've been double-minded about him, yeah, I want to believe, no, I don't believe. We would be glad to pray with you about that, okay? But if you want somebody, some believer to pray with you and agree with you about something, we'd love to do that with you this morning, okay? But right now, go to the Lord, ask him to bring out a doubt in your mind, and then deal with it, okay? Let's do it right now.